Turn with me to Acts chapter 18, page 1114. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that you would come and feed us this evening. Feed us just now as we come to your word. You've told us that there's no other bread that we need. Feed us later then when we gather around your table, when we take bread and wine and remember Jesus. Lord, we are hungry for you just now, and we pray that you would satisfy us completely. Amen. We live in an increasingly urbanized world. If you go back to 1900, only 13% of the world's population lived in cities. If you go on to 1950, you find that that proportion has risen to 29%. Three years ago, in 2005, when the UN commissioned a report on urbanization, they discovered that 49% of the world's population were living in cities. And they project a figure that by 2030, it'll be up to 60% of the world, 4.9 billion people living in cities. Half of the world's population this evening live in, in large cities. And that proportion is increasing quickly. This change in where people live provides a significant challenge to the church of Jesus Christ. I would suggest that the increased urbanization of our world and even of our island here in Ireland uh, presents a big challenge to our denomination. Because PCI's network of congregations was established mostly on the population patterns of the 20th, the 19th and the 18th centuries. So that network of congregations no longer accurately reflects where people actually live. We must change if we're to minister to people in the places where they really live. Here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, we've been giving a lot of attention recently to how we uh, might reach out more to this particular part of Belfast, this city where God has placed us. And that's entirely as it should be. That's a focus that that we can never drop. It might interest you to know that that on a a wider scale, the Holy East Belfast Presbytery at the moment is writing up a mission plan of how we are to, to reach this particular part of the city where God has placed us. If you know anything about the wider work of the Presbyterian Church, I'm sure you'll be encouraged by the, the strategy being formed by the Board of Mission in Ireland. There's a real emphasis now on reaching out, planting new churches, and doing so particularly in the urban centres of Ireland. We need to pray, I think, that God will use our church, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, to establish vibrant Christian communities in Dublin and in Cork, in Limerick and in Galway, and in other substantial urban centres throughout the island. By the time we get to Acts chapters 17 to 20, Paul is in the thick of urban ministry. 
Last week, Dave guided us through Acts chapter 17. He told us about the, the ministry in Athens. Athens was a relatively small city at the time, but hugely strategic. Kind of an intellectual center in the world of that time. In this evening's passage, we're going to read of the time Paul spent in Corinth. More of a commercial center, a much, much bigger city. And then next Sunday evening, Dan is going to come and share with us from Acts chapter 19, when we're going to look at Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And more so than the other two, it's a, it's a religious city, a religious center of the ancient world. So Paul, last week in Athens, but now this week we're tracking him as he makes his way to Corinth. He's traveling just 53 miles southwest from Athens down to Corinth. Corinth was politically and economically the main city in that district of ancient Greece. It's got a wonderfully strategic location. It's on a a three and a half mile isthmus. Now that's a word that I never use except when I'm reading biblical commentaries, but there it is, Uh, an isthmus, uh, very hard to say, between the the Peloponnesian Peninsula and the Greek mainland. A couple of weeks ago, I'm a bit frustrated at this point, I printed out some maps for you so that you could all follow Paul's second missionary journey. If you have a, a Bible that has a map in the back of it, flick it up now and you'll see exactly where Corinth is. It's got a wonderfully strategic location. Any, any seafaring traffic would go through Corinth. Anyone moving from the Aegean Sea uh, to the Adriatic would go through this bottleneck of a port. So it very quickly became a key commercial centre. Population of 200,000. That's incredible. So it's a, it's a thriving, fast-living, cosmopolitan kind of place. The poet Horace, he said, only the tough could survive in Corinth. And as I hear him talk, and as I read the descriptions of the city, I'm picturing a sort of an ancient world's equivalent of New York City. Paul is heading right into the center of the urban jungle. It doesn't get more urban than Corinth. Not here in Acts, but in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul tells us how he feels as he approached Corinth for the first time. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we think of Paul as the guy who would go anywhere with a heart and a half, never afraid, never timid, But here he tells us that as he goes to Corinth, he's terrified. What is it about this place that has Paul feeling so uneasy? I think we can guess that it's probably the pride, the immorality that was true of Corinth and that it's true of so many large urban centers. The Corinthians we know were a proud people. They were proud of their city. Julius Caesar had rebuilt it for them in 46 BC. They had huge wealth because of their commercial advantages. They had wonderful culture in their city. They had very famous sporting games. Corinth was a very, very proud place. It was also a very immoral place. Behind the city on a hill about 2,000 feet above sea level, you'd find the Temple of Aphrodite, or Venus, 
the goddess of love. A thousand female slaves served that shrine. And at night time, they moved through the city of Corinth and served the city as prostitutes. One commentator called Corinth the vanity fair of the Roman Empire. Friends, you see now why Paul was terrified. Why he went to the city in fear, weakness and trembling. He knew that he was going to Corinth to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew that he was going to confront pride and immorality head on. That's why Paul was afraid. Folks, I don't know about you, but when I look to Belfast, or when I look further afield to even larger, modern urban centers, I can identify with Paul. Weakness, fear, trembling. How can we take the gospel of Jesus Christ into these places? Tonight I want us to spend some time paying attention just to what Paul does. Allow God's word and his spirit to speak to us. To remind us of some of the simple and basic things that Paul does. That we might be encouraged as we think of taking the gospel to Belfast and further afield to Ireland's urban centres. We're going to notice three things this evening. The first one, Paul's reliance on gospel partners. We know this because of our studies in Acts prior to this evening. Paul worked together with people. It's a real strength of his. It was first Barnabas and then John Mark. Then he struck up a relationship with Silas and then Timothy. And tonight we're going to meet some new people with whom Paul works. Look at verse 2. Paul met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the rope all the Jews to leave Rome. History confirms that the Roman Emperor Claudius in AD 49 banished Jews from the city of Rome. Priscilla and Aquila seem to be two of these Jews sent into exile. Now they're Christians. We can presume that they were already Christians when they arrived in Corinth because actually the people who were banished from Rome were predominantly Christians, Christian Jews. Now Luke tells us that Paul went to see them because he was a tent maker. As they were, he stayed with them and worked with them. Now Paul's arriving in Corinth on his own. He's going to a place that he's never been before, a city of 200,000 people. Imagine the relief, the comfort That it was for Paul to be welcomed into a household. A a fellow believer and his wife. To be allowed to live with them and to work with them. These people became so dear to Paul. Priscilla and Aquila. In Romans 16, he speaks of them in glowing terms. He calls them his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. He says, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila. 
Now, this couple aren't the only gospel partners we read of in this chapter. If you look down to the final section of the chapter, beginning to read at verse 24, let me read it for you. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Apollos comes from Alexandria. That's a huge city with a, a million Jews in it, a city of Jewish scholars. So on paper, Apollos seems to be the perfect guy to take the gospel to the Jews of the ancient world. But we're told that there's something missing. Luke tells us that he knew only of the baptism of John. Now, that's quite a strange idea to us, that somebody would be preaching Jesus Christ but would know only of the baptism of John. It's an idea that we'll get a chance to look at a little bit more next week because it comes more to the fore in chapter 19. What I'm interested to look at here this evening is to see how Apollos Apollos becomes one of Paul's gospel partners. In verse 26, Luke tells us that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained the way of God more adequately. Isn't that brilliant? These same people who had invited Paul into their home, who had supported him and encouraged him, now invite Apollos also into their home. Apollos is missing something in what he's preaching. How do Priscilla and Aquila respond? Do they shout him down from the pew where they're sitting? Do they expose him as a heretic? Do they boycott his meetings at the synagogue? None of the above. They invite him to their home and they gently show him what he's missing. Instead of their theological correction happening in public, under the gaze of unforgiving eyes, they bring him into the safety of a hospitable home. Folks, it seems to me that this this gracious gospel friendship that they extend this young man may well have saved his ministry at an early time. The New Testament goes on to tell us that Paul really grew to appreciate Apollos' ministry. In the early chapters of his first letter to Corinth, Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. We've met three new people here, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos. And in each case, they become part of Paul's team. Paul will work together with anyone 
who's committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sees them never as rivals, these, these fellow evangelists. They're always members of the same team. They're always his gospel partners. Folks, if we are to reach this city and the cities of Ireland for Christ, it seems to me that we won't do so by working on our own. It won't, we won't do so by fragmentation, by competing with one another, with other churches and with other denominations. It'll be by working together with those whom God brings us. Paul worked with gospel partners. In Paul's urban ministry, we have to notice, I think, secondly, his hard work. We read in verse 3 that he was a tent maker, that he stayed and he worked with Aquila and Priscilla working in their business. We get a bit of an insight here, actually, into the kind of life that Paul lived when he was on the road. Paul was, by profession, he was really a Jewish rabbi. And rabbis were never full-time teachers. They always had to have a profession. A rabbi would practice a trade or, or a profession so that he could teach and know that he was never a burden uh, on the people to whom he was teaching. The, there were wonderful benefits of this. Jewish rabbis never became detached scholars. They always understood the working man, the working family whom they were trying to educate and teach. They always knew what the life of the working person was like. Paul was always keen to work like this so that he could offer the gospel wherever he went without charge. Nobody could ever accuse him of of receiving money for his ministry. And he explains this a number of times in his letters. In 1 Thessalonians, for example, he says that he and Silas and Timothy worked hard night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Now this tent-making approach, this part-time preaching approach, isn't the only approach that Paul used. Because we only have to read to verse 5 to see that when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. So what's happened here? Well, Silas and Timothy have brought financial assistance from the newly founded churches in Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 9, Paul explained explains to the believers in Corinth. When I was with you and needed something, I wasn't a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. (coughs) Pardon me. Paul's able to quit his tent making now for a while because the financial resources have arrived, allowing him to devote himself exclusively to preaching. Paul's not against the idea of a community supporting the person who preaches among them so that they can give themselves wholly to the preaching of the gospel. For example, in Galatians 6, verse 6, he says, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Jesus said something similar when he sent his disciples out. He encouraged them to eat and drink whatever you're given, for the worker deserves his wages. Folks, sometimes there's a big debate about whether people should be full-time ministers or preachers or whether they can do that better in a part-time way. Here in the space of a few verses, we see Paul doing both. 
That's not a big issue in the sharing of the gospel. I'll tell you what does strike me as a big issue. Paul works hard to ensure that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes into this huge city of 200,000 people. Whether he does it over and above his tent-making responsibilities or whether he does it giving himself to it fully, Paul gives himself to this work of preaching, of sharing the gospel. There's nothing half-hearted. There's nothing holding back. Paul prayed that God would open doors for him in his ministry, but he gave himself 100%. Folks, sometimes I wonder if we've understood this in our evangelical churches. We imagine that simply praying and asking God will, will do the work in our cities and in our communities. I don't see a biblical mandate for that. I see a biblical mandate for praying and then giving ourselves and giving ourselves and giving ourselves 100% to the work that God calls us to. Folks, if Belfast and Dublin and Galway and Cork are to be converted to Jesus Christ, it seems to me that hard work on the part of God's people will be one of the ingredients that will be necessary. Paul worked with gospel partners. Paul worked hard. And finally, the thing that underpins all the success of his ministry here in Corinth is God's promised protection. Paul came to Corinth in fear and trembling, and we see soon that he was right to be in fear and to tremble. We read in verse 6 that the Jews in the synagogue opposed Paul and became abusive. Folks, we've already said this evening, we mustn't imagine that Paul is impervious to this. Paul's a very passionate man, a man who, who senses things, who, who feels the betrayal of friends when, it, when he senses it, the, the encouragement and the discouragement. Paul, Paul would have been aware of all of this, an intense man full of emotion. We should probably expect that Paul, like us, felt discouraged and even depressed. I think it's lovely then to see that none of this, not one bit of it, is lost on the Heavenly Father. Look at verses 9 and 10. Luke records a beautiful moment for us. Not in the hustle and bustle of the day or the center of the city, but in the quiet, at night, God comes to Paul and he says to him, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack you and harm you because I have many people in this city. Paul is given a job to do, but God also gives him the strength and the encouragement to do it. There's something wonderful in what God says to Paul here. He says, I have many people in this city. What does that mean? 
This is before we read that Paul commits himself to staying in the city for a prolonged period of time. It's probably before many people have even heard the gospel. What does it mean to say that I have many people in this city? It means that God knows already who are his. In this proud and immoral city, God knows already who will respond to the call of the gospel when they hear it. Folks, isn't that wonderful? God knows which of your colleagues and of your friends, which long prayed for member of your family is going to come to faith in Jesus. None of that's a mystery to him. He knows who his people are in this city and all other cities. God knows who are his, but Paul must play his part and share the gospel with them. In verse 12, we realize that God's promise of protection, it was put to a test almost immediately because the Jews unite against Paul and they accuse him before the authorities. They accuse him and they persuade him Uh, Sorry, they accuse him of persuading people to worship God in ways which are contrary to the law. There's something very interesting going on here. Which law are they accusing Paul of infringing? The Jewish law or or the the civic law of Rome? If it's the, the Jewish law, then Gallio, the proconsul, would have no power to rule on this matter. But there's something we need to understand about how a place like Corinth worked at the time. Judaism was a religio licita, a licensed religion in the Roman Empire at that time. So throughout the empire, it was understood that Jewish people were allowed to go about their religious practices and customs and know the protection of Rome so long as they didn't disturb or infringe Roman law. So what the Jews are accusing Paul of here is breaking the terms of this license agreement, if you like. This man is persuading the people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. What they're saying is something like this. This guy's a Jew, but this isn't the proper authorized form of Judaism that has Roman support and approval. That's the gist of the accusation here. Before Paul can utter a single word in his defense, Gallio makes it clear that he won't render a verdict on this matter. God is fulfilling his promise of protection. Gallio says here, if you Jews are making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since this involves questions about words, and that's what it did, very important words, Words like the gospel. But since it involves questions of words and names, yes, it's all about names. Very important names. Names like Christ and Messiah and whether Jesus is entitled to them. But since it involves questions of words and names in your own law, settle the matter among yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. This is a huge moment. Because what this Roman proconsul is saying here is that Christianity 
now, in effect, stands beside Judaism as a religio licita, a licensed religion of the Roman Empire. God has done a wonderful thing here. For the time being, Christians will be afforded the same protection as the Jews. This is going to open doors throughout the Roman Empire, going to allow the gospel to continue to spread at least for a short window of time, for a few years into the future. Paul is serving in this huge city knowing God's protection. Folks, it would not be right that we could expect that God will go with us and protect us as we take the gospel to our city too. God doesn't promise us an easy time, nor does he promise us that people will welcome us with open arms. But he does promise in his word that he will be with us. He promises that his purposes will never be thwarted. Jesus Christ says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell won't stand against it. Friends, Paul's urban mission, it relied on gospel partnerships. It took hard work, but in the end, succeeded because it was in the hands and in the plans of God. As we step out, working together with gospel friends, working hard to bring the gospel to our city, let's know that we do a work that God will bless and that he will protect and enhance. Let us pray.